Welcome to the Florence Guild podcast, a collection of conversations with business and cultural leaders delivering insight into future approaches to business and life. Through conversations in an array of styles, from salon talks to lifestyle events, through to intimate facilitated lunches and dinners, Florence Guild promotes encounters, satiates curiosity, and allows insight into future approaches to business and life. The following Florence Guild conversation was recorded live at Work Club Melbourne, Australia's most forward-thinking workspace. This episode's conversation is about artificial intelligence. As AI is starting to make real progress, there is a large appetite to understand where it might be taking us. Toby Walsh, a leading researcher in artificial intelligence, will help us understand why AI is making the headlines today and what AI is not yet capable of. Toby is one of the world's leading researchers in artificial intelligence. He is a professor of artificial intelligence at the University of New South Wales and leads a research group at Data61, Australia's centre of excellence for ICT research. He has been elected a Fellow of the Association for the Advancement of AI for his contributions to AI research and has won the prestigious Humboldt Research Award. What AI can and can't do. A Florence Guild conversation with Toby Walsh. Thank you very much. Um, it's, it's, it's quite funny. I was uh, in uh, Sydney two days ago um, having a warm-up uh, conversation at the work, work club in Sydney, and uh, it's a lot more chilled here. You know, not just, not just lighting the wine. And people are rocking up. It's, it's funny how the atmosphere is different down in Melbourne. So much nicer. Uh, I, I guess because the atmosphere is, seems a bit more chilled here. Um, you might even ask questions before the end, right? So that's perfectly good as well, right? So feel free um, if I say something and you disagree or you want to know more and I'm moving on to something else, feel free to stop me and I'll, I'll be happy to, to try and um, talk about uh, what's really interesting you, what's really troubling you. So it is a really interesting time to be a professor of artificial intelligence, um, as you heard in the introduction, uh, because we do seem to be making very real progress with AI now. Um, and I want to spend a little bit of time saying why that is and give you a better understanding of what you could realistically do, perhaps in your business or in your life, uh, with AI today. Because if you read some of the things that uh, you see in the newspapers and certainly in Hollywood, you might get the impression that, well, it's almost game over for mankind. But that's not the case. Um, and also some of the limitations, some of the things that still challenge us. It's still going to take... Um, quite a bit of time before machines get as intelligent as us, and then probably even more intelligent than us. So, so I'll begin with, well, why is it happening now? Why at this moment in history? I've, I've spent my whole life, since I was a young boy, dreaming about building machines that could think, trying to think about these problems and trying to build machines smarter, smarter computers. And so why is it at this point in history, this particular moment in time, that we're actually making it seems, at least, very real progress. And it's, um, it's a combination of four different exponentials. Now, the word exponential gets misused by lots of people. Lots of people think it's the cure to any problem, and it's not. There's a lot of misunderstanding and a lot of buzz where they're using exponentials. But these really are, at least at the moment, 
exponential, something, uh, some phenomenon that's doubling in, in a fixed interval. That's the hallmark of an exponential. They're not, of course, going to go on forever. No exponential uh, in the universe goes on forever because it runs into resource limits or you know, um, physical limits. So all exponentials eventually end. So they're not going to, these are not exponentials that are going, going to continue forever. So that's a, another mistake that you, you see in, you know, when you hear people like Ray Kurzweil talk about some of these things, it's like exponentials are going to solve every problem. They're not. But they're very useful while they happen. Okay, and so the, so the first one is one that probably all of you are aware of, and one that means that the smartphone in your pocket now is more powerful than the computers that took us to the moon. And that's Moore's law. The doubling every 18 months to years of compute power. Technically the doubling of transistors, but, but that typically sort of transfers into the, you know, what we can do on machines. Again, that, that is an exponential that's always already stopped. Recently, Intel declared that Moore's law is over. We've run into essentially the physical limits, the, the quantum limits of how small you can shrink the transistors. And since Intel has declared it's dead, it's not in their corporate plan. They're not going to be building um, a new fab plant, a new billion dollar fab plant that's going to build smaller and smaller chips. So there's absolutely no, there's absolute certainty that Moore's law is dead. It's not in their corporate strategy anymore. They're trying to get chips that are more, more um, power friendly so that we can have more, more compute power in our mobile devices. But at any rate, the last 20, 30, or even more years that we've had Moore's law, right, right from the way back we had vacuum tubes, means that we can now do things that when I started out thinking about AI, were just not technically possible, just because we didn't have enough um, power on our machines. We couldn't have enough data there. We couldn't process enough data to do those things. So that's the first exponential. The second exponential is there's a similar doubling every two years. Actually, all the exponentials I'm going to tell you about are doublings every two years. There's absolutely no fundamental reason why it's every two years, but it just so happens they all coincide. The second exponential is the amount of data we've got, the amount of data we've got online. That's doubling every two years or so. And that's an exponential that's going to carry on for a bit longer because we're going to have things like the Internet of Things that means that we'll be collecting, all our devices will be collecting even more information about us and about the planet. So, and that's very useful because we're increasingly using things like machine learning and in particular things like deep learning, which are very data intensive. We're now getting much of that data. Data is, of course, the new oil. It is the new gold in most... You know, the most valuable companies in the world these days are data companies, you know. Um, Google is essentially, you know, an information company. Airbnb, again, it's, a, it's all about the data. It doesn't own any physical assets. So that's the second exponential. The third exponential, uh, and this is uh, one in which um, has come from us actually thinking more about the problem, is that the algorithms that we now have, we've been working in AI for 50 years, and the algorithms we now have are getting better and better in performance. And so if you look at our performance on some standard benchmarks like image recognition, can you identify what the object is in a, in a picture? Can you, can you say that's a cat, that's a dog, that's a glass, that's a chair? Our performance is doubling every two years. The error rate, the percentage of um, errors we're getting is halving every two years. Our performance in some sense is, is doubling every two years and it's been doing that for now for, for about eight years. And so um, and then the third, fourth, fourth, miscounting, the fourth exponential is the amount of money coming into the field. 
that's also doubling every two years for the last six years. And that means that you know, more and more people are drawn into the field. There's more and more that we do with all that funding. So not surprising, if you put in a pot those four ingredients, we've got more compute power, got more data with the compute power to run on it, we've got better algorithms, and we've got more people working on the problems, that's a recipe to start make, making some significant progress. And we are making some really significant progress. I mean, there are a number of landmark moments that have happened. In, um, last year when Lee Sedol, one of the best Go players on the planet, was beaten by AlphaGo, DeepMind, Google had acquired DeepMind. Um, that was a, a landmark moment when, when um, the first computer chess program beat the first computer grandmaster. Uh, IBM's Deep Blue in 1997 beat Kasparov, who was not only the world's best chess player, he was also, he's also um, one of the world's best chess players ever, and he lost to, to IBM's computer. The New York Times wrote a, a report of the, of the match at the time and said, well, in a rather sort of, well, humankind, we don't have to be too, too worried because, of course, uh, AI won't be succeeding until we can play a much more challenging game, like this ancient Chinese strategy game of Go. And so, at least from the New York Times perspective, beating humans at Go was, uh, was one of those moments where we could see that we're making uh, real progress. And even um, experts in the field had said it was another 10 years away, and we did it one year later. So you can see there's some acceleration in the progress we're doing. In fact, um, uh, this is my book, it's just come out. I was writing the book at the, at the beginning of the year, and at one point, I thought I was never going to finish writing the book, because every time I'd finish a chapter, some news story would break, and I think, ah, oh, chapter's out of date now, I have to go back and <laughs> update it. And at one point, I didn't think I was actually getting any further into, into finishing, but fortunately I did, it came out last week. So. Um, but, but we are making much, it's, it, it, you can't open a newspaper any day of the week now and not find a story or multiple stories about AI. So that's why now. So and I want to try and say a bit about what we can do now. So we're still building very limited machines in terms of their intelligence. It's, my, it's what you might call artificial special intelligence. They will solve one narrow task. So AlphaGo will play Go. It's not going to wake up in the morning and say, you know what, humans, you're no good at Go. I can beat all of you at Go, which it can. It can beat us all now very convincingly. It will say, uh, I'm going to you know, win some money at online poker. It's not going to do that. It's only going to do one thing, which is play Go. In fact, it's got no sentience, no desires. It doesn't even know it's playing Go. It's got one number. The probability it thinks it's going to win the game and it's trying to maximize that one number. That's the only thing AlphaGo is going to ever do. And it's certainly, you can ignore what Hollywood tries to make you believe. It's not going to wake up at any point in the future and say, you know what, humans, I'll be much better at running the planet than you, I'm going to take over. That's not something that's going to have to trouble us for a long, long time. So we can build machines that do a very specialized task. But even there, we can't do machines that can do every specialized task. There's still significant limitations to the intelligence of the machines we can build even when we focus them on one task. So how can you understand what we can do? Well, uh, Andrew Ning, who was the chief scientist at, at Baidu, um, China's Google equivalent, um, had a very good rule of thumb that I'm going to share with you that gives you a very good feel for what, for what you can do. 
we can solve things that require less than a second or, or less than a couple of seconds of thought. So as an example, we can drive down the highway. You can drive down the highway without really thinking about it. You can have a conversation, you can listen to the radio, you can text, you shouldn't do, but you can text probably, get away with it. Um, it doesn't require much conscious thought to drive down the highway. And yeah, we can do that today. In fact, you can go out, buy yourself a Tesla, and it will do that for you in autopilot mode. But we still can't do the more conscious driving that you do around town, where you know, bicycles come at you from all directions, because bicyclists don't follow one-way street signs, right? So they will come at you all, all directions. Um, there are pedestrians who will step out into the road. There will be roundabouts, traffic lights, trams, lots of things to negotiate. You've got to be much more focused. You've got to be thinking much more of the time to drive around the town. And that's still something that's maybe 10 years away before we'll get, I'm sure we will get it, and there'll be many benefits that we will have um, to do it. So if it's a task like that, uh, something that doesn't require too much consult, I mean, others examples of things like, you can get Google Translate to translate, or, or um, Skype Translate to even do, do the speech recognition and the translation in real time. Just like a human translator can sit in a, sit in a booth uh, in the United Nations and do real-time translations. So they're doing it pretty, uh, pretty automatically in some sense. So that's, again, something that we could get a computer to do today. We get a computer to you know, recommend products to you, just like a, a friend would know instantly what you might want to buy or what you might want to read. So there's lots of things like that that require not too much conscious thought, but the things that require significant high-level cognitive thought, we're still significantly challenged with. We still don't build machines that have a deep understanding of the text they're translating. If you give Google Translate the sentence, he was pregnant. Google Translate would have no idea. There's something troubling about that sentence, because you know, men don't get pregnant. It has no deep understanding about the sentence itself. It's very much still at word level and um, phrase level. So those things are going to take longer. They're going to take well, I surveyed actually recently 300 of, of, of my colleagues. Um, other people are leading researchers in AI. And the median answer, the, the average answer they came up with was it would take till 2062 before we have machines as intelligent as us. The interesting comparison is that we also surveyed 500 members of the public. Their expectation is 2045, significantly earlier, about half the time just under half the time, two decades earlier at least, um, which is a slightly troubling issue to have, that there are a number of technical obstacles that still remain, and the public is going to have to be a little disappointed, I suspect, um, before we get machines as intelligent as us. And then, as most of us predict, we'll have machines not long after that will be even more intelligent than us, and we will no longer be the smartest creatures on the planet which will be a very interesting moment, a very humbling moment, I hope, for humanity. We discover yet again that the one thing that we think makes us special, our intelligence, is not that special that we can actually make it in silicon and that we're actually not any longer the smartest thing on the planet. That we're actually, we can take a little pride, I guess, in the fact that we built the thing that now 
It's the smartest thing on the planet, um, which will have you know, immense benefits to our society. We can, many of the problems, many of the problems that challenge us, we can actually now farm out to the machines. The machines can take a lot of the sweat. They can do all the repetitive things. There's, there's a great promise. But there are also, as I'll talk about in the second half, there's also a lot of things that we should be concerned about. And there are a lot of risks that go with it, like with any technology. There are a lot of risks in how we choose to use that, that technology. But let's, let me just, before I get to that, let me just tell you a little bit more about some of the technical challenges that still remain. So one of the other things that really challenges machines is that they're incredibly slow learners. Now, a lot of AI these days is about machine learning. It's about machines learning how to do a task themselves, which makes a lot of sense. If you think, hey, you got to be intelligent. When you were born, you, you weren't very intelligent. None of us were very intelligent. Um, and a lot of your intelligence is things that you learned. You learned pretty much everything about how the world works. You learned language. You, you, when you were born, you don't have any language. Um, you learned uh, um, foreign languages. You, le you learned uh, lots of things. Most of the knowledge you have was things that you learned. And so not surprisingly, quite a good and easy way to get computers to be intelligent is to let them learn, give them the data, and then hopefully quicker than humans do, let them learn how to do things, let them learn language, let them learn all the things that we want them to do. But they do that very slowly today, much more slowly than humans. So if we go back to AlphaGo, we can see that uh, very well. So how did AlphaGo get to play Go, the ancient Chinese strategy game, so well and beat us despite the fact that we've been playing Go thousands of years? It's one of the, probably the oldest strategy game played on the planet. And actually, invent new ways of playing Go. I mean, it not just doesn't play Go better than we do. It plays a new type of Go because it has such a deeper, in some sense, understanding, although that word needs to be used with caution, of the game of Go. It knows how to play Go in new ways that humans were never smart enough to have found themselves in that several thousand years of, of learning to play Go. So how did AlphaGo get to play Go so well? It was played Go against itself. It played Go against itself billions of times. And that way it got to be first as good as us and now significantly, far, significantly smarter than us. Now, if you started playing Go the moment you were born and only played Go the whole of your life, it takes you know, an hour or two to play a game of Go, you wouldn't have played that many numbers of games of Go. Not, poss not physically possible. You spent every waking hour just playing Go. That's the only thing you did you wouldn't have played that much amount of Go. In fact, if everyone in this room only played Go, collectively, you couldn't have played that number of games of Go. So in some sense, AlphaGo is a very slow learner. But now it's played so much more Go than any human can possibly do, it's now, not surprisingly, much better than us at Go. But there's a, there's a very interesting coda to this story, which is that in the, in the exhibition match between Lee Sedol, who's one of the best Go players on the planet, when he was losing the, the crown to AlphaGo, Lee Sedol won the third game. He lost the first two. He, he, he won the, the third game and then lost the fourth. So lost, uh, lost overall. But he did win the third game. And he did that by understanding in just two, games of pre two previous games ago 
that there was something new and interesting about how AlphaGo was playing, and understanding enough of that that he could actually beat the program. So it only took Lisa Dole two, two and a half games, if you, depending how you want to think about it, two games of Go or so, to learn to play this new style of Go. The style of Go that it took the program billions of games of Go to learn. So we still have that big advantage. And that also tells you something about, if you're thinking about using AI in something that you're doing, you have to first ask yourself, do we have lots of data? If you don't have lots of data, there's absolutely no hope, certainly with the current state of art. We'll build, eventually, at some point in the next 50 years, I'm sure, machines that can learn like we can learn. We can learn from a single example. We have to be. If you're chase, being chased by a tiger in the forest, you don't have time to learn from the second example of a tiger in the forest. Right? You've already been eaten. So that's, that's one thing that, that uh, we still have a real edge over the machines. We can learn very, very quickly. Another thing that we have a real edge over the machines is that um, we have a really deep understanding of language. And that whilst we can get machines to do some processing with language, to identify sentiment in, a, in expression, they don't have a deep understanding, to, as, as we talked about, um, to understand why saying he was pregnant. It doesn't, doesn't understand that sentence to understand what was wrong with that sentence. The th third thing that computers don't have is they have no emotional intelligence, no social intelligence at all. They're very emotionally poor. But they don't have, of course, they don't have emotions. We don't understand really enough of how emotions contribute to intelligence. They seem, they seem to be very important. They're an important part of our lives. Um, they seem to serve, therefore, one suspects, a strong evolutionary purpose to make us, help us quickly make decisions in, in, in situations of stress. But we don't know enough about emotions yet to hope to even program fake emotions in computers. Computers will become more and more smart emotionally. They'll, they'll have to be, because we'll be spending more and more of our time interacting with machines. AI is the operating system of the future. It's going to be just like in the movie Her. You're going to spend more and more of your life talking to the cloud that will follow you around in your car, your office, everywhere you go. You'll just talk to the, talk to the room, talk to the talk to the table, talk to, you'll just walk into a new room and just say, what's in my diary? And the room will biometrically identify your voice, get the permission to look up your diary in the cloud, and know what to tell you next. So it's going to be a, AI is just going to be the long-running conversation that follows your life. And so in that sense, it's going to be useful if the AI understands your emotions, understands when you're under stress, understands when you are, uh, understands the things that are worrying you, um, follows you that way. Maybe, maybe we'll also engage with them more when they seem to have some emotional life in themselves. And then the final thing that computers don't have, and it's not clear, in fact, they'll ever have, is they have no sentience, no consciousness, no desires. They do what they're programmed to do. AlphaGo is only going to play Go. It has no consciousness that it's playing Go. None of the machines we build have any sort of consciousness. This is why Hollywood is getting us unnecessarily worried at the moment, at least. Because the machines have no desires to take over. They do what they're programmed to do. And that's only what they do. In fact, I'm much more worried about stupid AI. The fact that we're already giving responsibility to machines that are not so capable, that have minimal intelligence, 
And that actually, there's a lot of cases where having more intelligence will mean there won't be less things to worry about. That there are some things that we should be worrying about. Um, one of the things that we should be worrying about very soon is the impact that it's going to have on employment. Increasingly, machines are going to be able to take over many of the tasks, not just the repetitive tasks, but even some of the cognitive tasks that you and I and the rest of the population do. It's true, if you go into factories, car factories, for example, you already see the robots are doing many of the tasks. The robots are doing the painting, the robots are doing the welding, and they're doing a much better job of that than us humans ever did. They weld better, they paint better than humans ever can. And there's absolutely no future for humans working in car factories. Equally, there's absolutely no future for humans driving taxis, driving trucks, delivering, driving delivery vehicles. And potentially, there's no future for humans driving planes, trains, and ships. And so if you have one of those jobs, you have to start asking yourself, well, what other skill have I got? Because there's going to be a limited amount of time while people are willing to pay the extra to have me do the driving. Because it's going to be far safer and far cheaper to have a computer do it. There are going to be far less road traffic accidents. Sweden's got a uh, 2020 vision of having zero road deaths by 2020. And there's a beautiful graph that shows the number of road deaths over years. And it's going towards the zero axis. And it will hit the zero axis at around 2020. They're going to achieve their goal, or close to their goal. And they've got all the easy gains so far. They've redesigned the roads to remove all the dangerous parts of the roads. The cars have got safer and safer with airbags and all these safety devices. But they're starting to run into, there, there is little else to get cheaply. And the only thing left is to get the idiot out of the car. Because <laughs> we are terrible drivers. We drive when we're tired. We drive when we're drunk. We drive when we're texting. We are the worst possible drivers, right? And it will open up our cities. It will be transformative in so many ways to our lives. And the cost of transportation will come down by many uh, factors. There was a study done for the city of Lisbon, a decent-sized city, and it was estimated you could do the same transport if you had autonomous cars with one-tenth of the cars. Because if you look out in the streets, uh, the streets are mostly full of cars parked waiting for people, waiting for them to do uh, to take them home or to take them to their next destination. Our streets are, are just large parking lots, mostly. So that won't have to happen. Your car can go off and earn you money as an Uber taxi. In fact, you probably won't own a, a car. You'll, you'll just rent time on it on some super Uber app. And uh, that will be so much more productive. Your time can be used to do the things you want to do. You won't have to sit there focused on driving. You can, you can go off and you can answer emails. You can read a book, you can speak to your friends, you can do whatever you like. That time will be given back to you. So it's going to be, from the most of the population, it's going to be a great benefit. My father uh, recently announced that he stopped driving because he doesn't feel safe anymore, he's too old. And I said to him, don't worry, I said, in like five years' time, you'll have a car again because it will drive you where you want. So it will give him back the mobility he's just lost. And the same for young people, the same for who are too young to drive. Same for handicapped people who physically can't drive. They will have mobility that they never had before. 
So it's going to be a great benefit to most of the, of the population, but it's not going to be a benefit to people whose skill, whose, whose earning, whose, whose, whose livelihood today is driving. Because we're not going to be wanting to pay extra, or few of us are going to want to pay extra, to have a human drive. And so where are all those jobs? Where are all those people going to get their jobs? Um, now, um, there's a lot of scaremongering. Because lots of technology, all technologies normally not only destroy jobs, autonomous cars may destroy driving as a job, but they create lots of new jobs. That's always been the case in the past. If you look before the Industrial Revolution, uh, most of us were working out in the fields, farming. Now, about 3% of the population is involved in farming. It's heavily automated, heavily mechanized. We feed a lot more people with a lot less, uh, with a lot less people working. And so, but those people, well, they've got jobs elsewhere now. We've created lots of new jobs in factories and offices that didn't exist before the Industrial Revolution. The challenge, though, is, is that there's no fundamental law of economics that requires that always to be the case. And this time could potentially be different because the last time we did have at least still a cognitive edge over the tractors and combine harvesters. There were still things the machines couldn't do in the first Industrial Revolution. This time, you have to start asking yourself more seriously, though, what's left for humans if they're also doing the cognitive tasks? Um, and that's why some of these reports that you see and some of these statistics you see sound rather troubling. Uh, um, the granddaddy of them all, I think, is this University of Oxford report that made a prediction that 47% of jobs are at risk of um, replacement by automation in the next two decades. 47%. Rubbish. That number is absolute rubbish. I'm a good scientist, so I go and look at the data. I went and looked at their data, and they predicted, for example, that bicycle repair person had a 98% chance of being automated in the next two decades. I can guarantee you there is a 0% chance that bicycle repair person is going to be automated in the next two decades for multiple reasons. First reason is it's a very tricky, fiddly job. It's going to take more than two decades to work out how to build a robot that can do the sort of pre precise fiddling you need to do when you're making bits or putting bits or repairing bits on a bicycle. The second is it's not a well-paid job. You're going to have to have a very expensive robot to do this very fiddly stuff, and that's going to take multiple decades. And then you're, you're trying to replace someone who was very cheap. It's not going to make any economic sense. And then it doesn't make any social sense. So a friend of mine does, own, does run a bike store. And repairing bikes is not about repairing bikes. They don't make money. They lose money repairing bikes. It's about getting people in the, in the front door so they can chat with them about the latest bit of kit or about the latest bicycle routes. It's all about social interaction. And we won't want to do that with a robot. We want to do that with each other. So on multiple levels, there's no chance that bicycle repair person. So some of the predictions are completely bogus. And then it doesn't take into account this fact that, that there'll be many new jobs that we can't even think of because they involve technologies invented in 10 years' time that we'll be doing in two decades' time. So we don't know anyone who tries to pretend we know uh, how many jobs are at risk of automation is fooling you, if not themselves. But it does seem that there's going to be a significant displacement and one thing is absolutely sure. The new jobs 
that will be created will require different skills to the old jobs that they replace. And so the take-home message from that is that education, lifelong education, is going to be the only way we keep ahead of the machines. But education doesn't stop when you leave school. Education doesn't stop when you leave university. We're going to have to make sure that we have a society in which all of us, even us working, even those of us working in gig economies, have the ability, have the freedom to be able to keep on reskilling themselves so that they keep themselves employable. And then there are lots of other fundamental questions I can, we can perhaps go into the discussion where we're, are we going to have to change our society in some pretty radical ways to deal with the change? And if you think about it, we have a really good historical precedent here. The Industrial Revolution. We changed our society in a very fundamental way. We stopped from being an agrarian society to being an industrialized society. And we made some really quite radical reforms to how society worked to make that transition happen, to make it so that all of us benefited, and all of us did. We live much better quality lives than people before the Industrial Revolution. We work a much shorter week. We have much better health care. We have much better life expectancy. We get, we've, the, our quality of life has increased greatly because we embraced the technology and went with it. But we had to make some pretty large structural changes to make sure that people like Karl Marx was wrong. And it wasn't just the owners of production got all the benefits. We introduced universal education so you could get yourself educated for those new jobs. We introduced unions. We introduced so that your rights were a bit better protected and so that the owners of production couldn't exploit you. We introduced um, the welfare system so that if you were made unemployed, you weren't in the poorhouse. We introduced pensions. We introduced, we made some pretty large structural changes. We introduced, even introduced the modern idea of the corporation and, and, and um, public limited liability so that we could actually run with the technology without it destroying our lives, without us being personally bankrupted, so that we could actually take risks. So there's lots of things we did to make us go through that transition and so that our quality of life came out of it better and now much better than it was before the Industrial Revolution. The worrying part of the historical lesson, though, was that there was about 50 years of significant pain before the quality of life of the average member of the population was more than it was before the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. And this time, it's pretty certain the transformation, the revolution that AI is bringing to our lives, it's going to happen much quicker. In the Industrial Revolution, you needed capital. You needed to build big bits of industry, big steam engines, big machinery. That required time and money. The AI revolution requires us to copy code. That requires almost no time and no money. And so the, and combined with which we're in this amazingly globalized world so that the innovations in one part of the world spread almost instantaneously to the, all the other parts of the world. So for this reason, whereas the Industrial Revolution was, to begin with, largely confined to places like uh, England, uh, and then spread much more slowly out to the rest of the world. So this revolution, for a variety of, of technical, uh, economic, and other reasons, is, going, is almost certainly going to happen much, much quicker, which gives us even less time to prepare for the changes. And the changes, I expect, I need to be as radical as the changes 
that happened with the Industrial Revolution, the introduction of universal education, unions, labor laws, public limited car, uh, companies, lots of things that we made so that we actually did as a society as a whole profit. And the, and the derivative of the change at the moment is not a good one. Wealth is being, inequality is, is increasing dramatically. The very rich are getting very rich. The rest of us are being left behind. And certainly wages for most people have stagnated. Okay, unemployment today, the figures were out. Unemployment is, has not increased dramatically. But you look at the distribution of jobs, many more of us are doing many lower paid jobs. And those of us who are still in better paid jobs are seeing no pay increases. Despite the fact that we have, you know, the wealthiest corporations on the planet are the ones with all the productivity gains. That we have big tech companies that are not, it seems, willing to pay their way. It's, it's surreal that we live in a world where the second most valuable company in the world, Google, has a special tax so that it can be forced to try and pay a modicum of tax, not even the amount of tax the rest of the world seems to pay. But it, it behaves, a company whose motto, don't forget, is don't do evil. It has to have a special tax to try and force it to pay a little more tax, right? How we've fallen for this idea that they're working in our own best interest when they are as powerful as small companies, as small countries, that, um, and they're unwilling to pay tax in the regions in which they generate that wealth, benefiting from our education system, benefiting from our, our economic structure, our, our stability, our legal system, all the things that government spends money on and that Google doesn't seem to be wanting to willing to help pay for, that gives them that, that, uh, that ability to make money. So I think we're going to have to have some pretty radical discussions and some, make some pretty tough decisions about how we make sure that we transition through this. And maybe, I'm not, a, I'm not an expert economist, Maybe it is going to involve things like universal basic income. Maybe it is going to involve negative tax rates. Maybe it is going to involve more forcibly taxing more of these companies. Maybe it is going to involve a new type of a corporation, just like we had a new type of corporation for the Industrial Revolution, so that all of us can benefit. It seems that the current type of corporation is neither willing to pay its way or even behave ethically. Its values no longer seem to align. Um, uh, we have to more, for sure, more forcibly regulate the markets. We've discovered in banking, very, uh, very painfully to our cost in 2008, that unregulated markets will go to excesses and behave uh, poorly. We will discover this with now you know, the biggest markets in the world, which are the information markets that we will now work in. We will have to you know, make some pretty strong changes to make sure that uh, the future is a bright one. And I just want to end by, by the final misconception that people have, which is that the future is something we have to adapt to. The future is not fixed. It's not something we have to adapt to. The future is the product of the decisions we as a society make today. We get to choose the future we want to live in. And we're not demanding enough, for example, from the big tech companies. We're giving them too much of a free ride. And we have to demand our politicians and, and, and demand through our actions um, that, uh, that they behave in a way that, that is, is compatible with what we want our society to be, what our, we want our, our society to be, to be more compassionate, to be more inclusive, to be one in which um, you know, we're all proud to be members of that society. 
So I think that, and that's the, that's the main reason actually I wrote this book, to try and persuade people that we should be starting to more seriously think about these issues. And these are not issues for technology. The technology is completely morally neutral. Use it for good or for bad. Use it for autonomous robots that will kill people in the battlefield, or use it for autonomous cars that will save a thousand people from dying in road traffic accidents in the next year on the roads of Australia. We get to make those choices. Thank you. Explore the Florence Guild podcast with the best talent from Australia and across the world. You can subscribe and rate this podcast on iTunes. For more information on Florence Guild, visit florenceguild.com.